it. Y and Z. You know, I just, we thought about maybe uh, putting a couple more episodes in because so, we usually do uh, 15, 15 episodes. We were like, you know what? It actually, and we did not plan this at all, timed perfectly with us going away on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> so next week it'll be like a nice little short episode mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we record and release. And then when we get back, I don't know, I have a couple book episodes that, mm-hmm. like interviews that are pretty cool that I have banked. Yeah. And we can also re-release an episode because a lot of ours are getting deleted off of Apple Podcasts, yeah. which is lame. I think last <laughs> year we re-released the Medusa one. Ooh, that was a good one. I think we it would be fun to re-release the Barbie and um, <gasps> Sally ride yes. one. That's I totally a great agree. So we'll think about that. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but we're not here to talk about past episodes or vacation or the fact that it is a million degrees right now. Yeah. Or the fact that it's my anniversary. <laughs> or the fact that it's your anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. 15 <gasps> years. Big deal. 15. Big deal. Oh my God. Well, we're here to talk about history. On the rocks! <laughs> With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the whole time. And we are not historians. Mm-hmm. We do know the alphabet, though, forwards, yes. not backwards. <laughs> and we know how to use the internet mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sometimes the computer. Yeah. I will say I was a little out of my depth in this research this week because um, mm. it's a lot of like literature stuff. Yeah, that isn't I'm she not... like a lot of Harlem Renaissance stuff yeah. too? Yeah, uh-huh. that's a big. It's a big time period. It's big a big deal. Um, so just keep in mind, please, that we are not historians. Just especially for this week. Yeah, we um, are <laughs> idiots. We're idiots. It's okay, uh, but that's all right because it'll be a good time, um, and we have cocktails to pair with each woman, and we're going to learn all about them, and it's going to be great. Uh, but you cannot look up what these women look like because no you are busy shaking all the sand off of your beach towels because you were just at the beach. You're coming home. We're going there. Everything's topsy turvy. Yeah, you'll um, find sand <laughs> in your house all the mm-hmm. way through the end of September mm-hmm. into October, perhaps. It'll just magically go away until next year. Yeah, but you're dealing with it now, so you don't want to take out your phone. Maybe get sand in your phone, and just everything's going to be crazy. So, we're going to describe what they look like so that you have a picture in your head while we're telling their story. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I am doing Ya Ashantiwa, and she is a woman from the Asante Empire that is modern-day Ghana. She is depicted in drawings. We do have some photographs of her, but in her drawings, she's depicted as a thin but very strong or tough mm-hmm. woman with a closely trimmed hair and a brightly colored African wrap that okay. is almost wrapped that kind of looks like a Grecian robe, but with a more uh, Eastern or Western African mm-hmm. style print. And she usually had like slacks on underneath of it. And she wore a lot of golden jewelry and was Ooh. always armed with some sort of rifle or mm. gun or something <laughs> like that. 
Who are you doing and what does she look like? Okay, so I am doing Zora Neale Hurston. Um, so I don't know how tall she actually was, but she just looks tall in her photos. She does. She just looks very tall and statuesque and in command. Um, she's also the type of person who, I don't know if you agree with this, but she looks different in a lot of photos. She does. Like, I guess she just has very interesting face angles. Um, I think it's because she has like, like hot, like wide set eyes, really high cheekbones and a big smile. But she could also like kind of like make her lips like kind of like person to be kind of small. You know, she just like, like there's one episode, or not episode, one picture where she looks to me like exactly like Queen Latifah. Mm. And then others pictures where she looks nothing like her. Doesn't she also <laughs> wear like hats? She loves a hat. And that, I feel like that <laughs> changes the way your face looks. I think so too. Yeah. And like, I think she has a lot of different hairstyles too over the years. It's always kind of short. Like it's never very long, mm-hmm. um, but she wears a lot of hats and photos. Um, and she is wearing a lot of like low waisted 1920s dresses and sometimes she is sitting pensively at a desk, but in many photos, she is banging on a drum while out doing some field work. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> Very exciting. So that's what she looks like. I love that. <laughs> so right. do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks refreshing and I can't wait to get into it. <laughs> I tried for a blended cocktail, which we don't do often we because don't. I always mess it up. <laughs> Uh, well, going back to a Wilhelmina Fleming, <laughs> real problem. I think it's because you're impatient. Like, I don't think you blend it for long enough I, ever. I, I physically can't <laughs> be patient. I can't do it. Okay. So this is called the golden region and it is kind of like a smoothie okay. in that I used plain vanilla yogurt. Uh, I used ice and this all goes in the blender. I used coconut rum. I used peach liquor um and lime juice and then i blended it all together and put them in martini glasses Mm. and just rested a sage leaf on the top well cheers Mm. i think you blended this one perfectly i did it oh it's so good i'm so proud i can't taste the alcohol though Mm -mm. Mm. did i say i put a ton of pineapple in it I don't think so. No, oh, but you did. real true trunks of pineapple. Real pineapple. So the mm. only alcohol is I used Malibu and then a peach liquor, which I use like a Yum. peach snops yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. So mm. I don't know. I really like it. I love it. And I love that you used yogurt in it because mm. I've never had, I don't think we've ever done a cocktail with mm-hmm. yogurt in it. And it is so delicious yeah. and refreshing. And it also gives it like a tang yeah. that I really enjoy. It's nice. Mm. Okay. Ooh, everybody try this one on a nice summer day. Don't wait mm. till before bed because it's kind of sugary. Well, mm-hmm. it's sweet. Mm-hmm. It's not sugary. It's just sweet. Okay. What do you know about Ya Ashantiwa? Ya Ashantiwa. Yeah. I don't know anything. So her name's just Y-A-A, like her Y-A-A. first name. Y-A-A. Okay. Yeah. And then her last name is Ashantiwa? Yeah, Ashantiwa. Okay. I don't know anything. I have never heard of this person. Yeah. I have. I, I mean, you said a lot of drawings and then some pictures. So yeah. I'm guessing she's around like 1800. Yeah. Okay. 18 merging into 1900s. That's exactly it. Mm, that's it. That's all I know. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so I, all my sources are, um, I found this video called Queens of the World on YouTube. I read Wikipedia. There is, um, 
a like offshoot of drunk history called drunk history colon black stories hmm. so that's on youtube and then i watched another video called ya asantiwa warrior queen so i'm gonna tell you a little story a lot of it kind of like my woman last week is about the politics around her and the people mm-hmm. around her okay and her story's a little bit limited but it is very interesting and i'm glad i got to learn about her okay so Yah was born in 1840 in what is now modern-day Ghana or the Ivory Coast, which is located on the western coast of Africa in that, like, little hook curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be where the majority of the transatlantic slave trade is coming out of. So just to kind of give you a perspective, mm-hmm. she's born, like, at the tail end of the slave trade. Okay. Her parents were Kowaku and Poma and Atupo, and her brother was Efrain Penin. Ya had a childhood with without incident. We don't really know much about it. She was kind of in, um, I wouldn't say a royal family, but her family seems to be pretty high up in the government. She cultivated crops on the land around her own um around her own home she seemed to be a pretty skilled farmer because the area was kind of difficult to farm Mm -hmm. ghana is like directly sub-saharan africa so it's like desert adjacent um and also this region is really well known for its natural resources specifically Mm. its gold mines which of course is going to catch the interest of the european people And I think in the scramble for Africa, like at the time of her birth, the Dutch owned that area. By the time she dies, they don't. But that's who had it. Um, I want to go back and give a brief description of like what was happening to give everybody an idea of Mm -hmm. why her story has so much prominence. In the early 1800s, there were several different tribes or kingdoms in this region and this one guy had a whole bunch of little local battles to unify the tribes and he created the asante kingdom now a lot all of the african pronunciation guides said asante but a lot of um people from western europe and north america pronounce it ashanti like the singer but i'm pretty sure it's asante okay So they create this one united set of kingdoms called the Asante Kingdom. It's set up pretty democratically Mm -hmm. where there's this head chief and then there's local chiefs for all the districts. The chiefs are selected by merit. It's not by birth. And then each of the areas also have councils that act to check and balance the kings from each of the regions. And they have the right to remove a leader if they find that they're not fit for the role anymore. So as soon as these kingdoms all get connected into one thing, the high priest kind of has this vision, praise to the gods to try to keep the tribes together. And he has delivered a golden stool. Now, the Asante people, to them, this is the most important religious, um, mystical, powerful, cultural relic that they have. It's a stool that is literally just golden. Like okay. you sit on it. 
Um, but stools aren't just thrones to the Asante people. They're given out for important milestones in your life. Oh. When a kid learns to crawl, they get a stool. When a girl goes through puberty, they get a special kind of stool. When a couple gets married, when a person dies, if an important leader dies, they take their stool and paint it black. And oh. it's like enshrined. So it's something you like keep with you for your life. Usually they're made from wood, but the more intricate they get, the more important you are. Oh, so interesting. So the golden stool is like the most important one in the Asante culture. So the kingdom's pretty powerful because of all the gold and all the natural resources. Mm -hmm. So they kind of start conquering land around them. As per usual at the tribe, when they conquered another region, they would take the people on as slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, But their slaves became new citizens and had some rights, and they could eventually work their way to freedom. Um, This is obviously different from the slave trade happening just a couple miles away. Um, so the Santi people are like, you know, it will be great if we conquer all the way up to the coast, because then we'll be able to be in control of all the trade between the Europeans and the Americans. So in the region right now, we've got the British, we've got the Dutch, we've got different groups of Africans, and they're all kind of siding, siding with different groups of Europeans. Mm-hmm. And in 1924, we have the first anglo Asante war. There's five. Oh, she's part of the fifth one. Oh, okay. so there are four wars between this kingdom of people and the European people before like she's even bored. Oh, my God. Or a part of it. Um, so I'm going to kind of briefly go through them, but it's not too fancy. Like in the first one, the Asante team up with the Dutch and they kind of kick the shit out of the British and make a whole bunch of money off of this. And then there's a few decades of relative peace. Then this European guy comes down and sees all of the gold. He's like, your houses are gold, your clothes are gold, your jewelry's gold, your chairs are gold. (laughs) This is insane. So he writes a book about it. Oh, my God. Which is not great. Um, And Europeans start to take interest. During this time of peace is when Yah is born into a very super wealthy kingdom. We also know that when she came of age, she entered into a polygamous marriage, which was common at that time. And the man moved into like her uh, region of the kingdom because women had a really powerful role Um, in the Asante tribe. They were seen as the people who would pass the stools down to other generations and they carried children in their wombs. So women were very important. So Mm. in European culture, when you married off a daughter, she went to kind of live with the husband's family, Uh but it was opposite in this culture. So her husband came to kind of live there and they have a daughter and it's so important that they have a daughter. Everybody's like, Oh my gosh, you have a girl, which again, wow. is not a common thing. (laughs) It was like, looked down upon in a lot of other places so in their polygamy was it a whole like multiple wives or did she have multiple husbands or were they just wives okay still okay yeah it's still multiple wives which there are still people in the asante tribe now that have polygamous relationships but um from the videos i was watching it looked like monogamy is like catching on a lot more okay well because it also seems like that makes more sense that the man would come to live with the woman too just because you know, he's the one that seems like he's bouncing around the different houses. Right. Or would all the other wives come live with her, too? I don't know. It could know. be, but I think they might all be from the same region. Like, okay. you get married and you get married to people from that region. Okay. 
Um, so during her early marriage, we have the second war with the Brits, uh, kind of a stalemate. Both sides lose a ton of people to malaria. Mm-hmm. Not too long after that, um, the British aren't able to forget all the gold down there. So they buy the area from the Dutch. So now the Netherlands kind of out of it. They come back, but this time the British have machine guns and they have <sighs> soldiers that are all now vaccinated for malaria. Oh, shit. So now they just like kick the shit out of them. They burn down the capital. They kill a lot of people. But in this happening, her brother becomes one of the region's chiefs. So now her brother is a king. Okay. And he appoints her as the queen mother, which is weird because usually the queen mother is the mother of the right. king. Yeah. But it's the second in command. And maybe at this point his mother's dead. Okay. So he appoints his sister okay. as the queen mother. So now she's second in command in that region. If he wow. dies, she's the queen. Okay. And women did have power to rule here. They didn't have to immediately hand everything over to a man. They okay. did have to eventually. But okay. So of course. War breaks out. This is like the fourth one. Her brother dies. Mm. He was a chief. He's dead. So now she is the regent of the area and appoints her grandson to rule under her. The British want them to be a protectorate and they refuse. And the British take a whole bunch of money and gold back to the museums in London and just people walk around and look at all the cultural stuff that Mm -hmm. they stole. And they also, the British exile her grandson and a whole bunch of other leaders to the islands of Seychelles, which are off the coast. Okay. Now all the men are gone and Yaz like the only leader. She's just like kind of there. The fourth war has just happened. There's probably going to be another one because the British are still trying to take over So now all the men are gone, and the British general comes in, and he demands the golden stool. Demands it. I want the stool. I want to sit on it. It's a relic. It belongs to our queen, Queen Victoria, back at home. She's the actual queen of this place. Give us the stool. You know what's frustrating is, like, it doesn't actually mean anything to him, but he knows it means a lot to them. Yeah. And that's why he wants it. You know what I'm saying? And it's frustrating. (laughs) It, it would be like, I don't know, telling a Mormon like you want their original Joseph Smith manuscripts. Right. It's like, that doesn't mean anything you to you. You don't care about but it that. it means a lot to them. Yeah. Okay? Let so back the fuck off. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Or like any relics in like Buddhist temples. Exactly. Like you don't need that. No. You don't need it in a museum. You just <laughs> like, want it because it. you know it means something to them. Yeah. Mm. So she, as queen, hide the stool. <gasps> she tells, hide the stool. We're not giving it up. <sighs> Gets hidden. Okay, they are digging holes all over Ghana trying to find this stool. The British are like, it's like holes. I know. They're looking for it. They're looking for it. They're like, where's the Stanley Yelnat? Oh, my God. I don't want to dig anymore, Grandpa. (laughs) Exactly. What did she say? That's what she says. It's the warden when she was little. She's the one who says it. (laughs) D-I-G. Dig. And you're going to keep digging. Oh, my God. I was just thinking about holes this morning actually that's a perfect (laughs) perfect cinematic experience (laughs) so stool is hidden they're searching everywhere um and the british are pissed about that but then yah and a couple other leaders that are still around have a private secret meeting like secret secrets Mm -hmm. and they discuss how are we going to get our kings sent back from seychelles Mm -hmm. 
And um, should we fight and confront the British or should we not? Some of the groups are like, no, just kind of let them have it. All mm-hmm. of Africa's kind of taken over by these people. Like, mm-hmm. we're just going to die anyway. And some people are like, no, we should absolutely fight. So, yeah, at 60 years old, is present at this meeting, stands up to address the members. And this is her quote translated into English. How can a proud and brave people like the Asante sit back and look while white men took away their kings and chiefs and humiliated them with the demand for the golden stool. The golden stool only means money to the white men. They have searched and dug everywhere for it. I shall not pay one predwan to the governor. If you, the chiefs of Asante, are going to behave like cowards and not fight, you should exchange your loincloths for my undergarments. She's like, stop being such a little baby girl <laughs> and get your ass up and fight. And then to finish this speech, she picks up a gun and fires <sighs> it into the air oh like multiple multiple times. Like, come on, boys. <laughs> We're going to fight. Um, rouses all these men. They're all so ashamed of themselves for <laughs> not so. wanting to fight. And <laughs> all of their wives the women in the kingdom refuse to sleep with their husbands if they don't join the resistance i love that. isn't that the best yes so good for her there <laughs> so they actually in the room that day decide to appoint her as the war leader wow so she's a general now Look at her. this is the first example of a woman to have that role in asante history wow um, so now this battle is called the Asante British War. Sometimes it's called the War of the Golden Stool, and sometimes it's called the Ya Asante War. And it was led by a female that leader. That is so cool. Yeah. She led 5,000 troops. So it's March. It's 1990. She leads a scene. 1990? 1900. Oh. My God. <laughs> Not 1990. Not 1990. It's leading an army. She's over 100 years old. What's mm-hmm. happening? Not at all. 1990. She's like 60. Thank God. Okay. Yeah. That would have been terrible. Okay. The rebellion lays siege to a fort. This okay. fort is still there. It's a military museum. They are sieging this fort for several months. They're like starving out the British people. Eventually, from overseas, the Brits get angry and they send thousands of people down Ugh. to just kind of squash this rebellion. During the fighting, Queen Yah and 15 of her closest advisors get captured and mm. also sent to Seychelles in exile. The rebellion represented the fifth and final war of the Anglo-Asante series of wars all throughout the 19th century. On January 1st, 1902, the British finally annexed the territory mm. and took it for themselves. And the Asante people and region were transformed by the British crown. Ya Asantiwa died in exile in Seychelles in October of 1921. Three years after her death, the kings and other men in exile were allowed to come back to Ghana, but they had saved her remains so they could bring her home for a proper royal burial. Yah's dream of independence for Ghana was not realized until March 6th, 1957. Oh my God. So years after she died. 
Ghana was the first African nation in sub-Saharan Africa to achieve the feat of freedom. During her life, Ya understood the ramifications of British colonial rule. She's seen by Ghanans today as a queen mother who exercised her political rights and social clout to defend her kingdom. The role she played in influencing the Asante men to battle against the British is the main function of her, like, monarch role in Mm -hmm. Ghana at that time. But during her time as regent, she did some other things as well. She expressed the political opinion that women should be seen as strong, complementary counterparts to men. They had female leaders, and she had these female leaders um, serve in courtrooms. So anytime there was like a court case that had to do with women, the women leaders would be in charge of that. During her time as queen, she was also the gatekeeper of the Golden Stool, which to this day, a hundred years later, the British still don't know where it is. <gasps> the Asante people, there's a few people who knows know where it is it's in the royal bloodline and they bring it out from its hiding place for special occasions oh my god and then they put it back in <gasps> yah's hiding place what so you, do we have any pictures of it or anything there are pictures of it oh okay um and it's on the tribal flag of the asante people but we don't know where it is or where it's kept that is so cool <laughs> i just want to know i want to like play hide and seek against her so bad she'd God. probably kill it yeah <laughs> i feel like she's like the carol um king of Ghana. Yes. not carol king what the fuck is her name the one who wrote you're so vain carly simon of- she's the carly yeah. simon of ghana no one knows who you're so vain's about no and no one knows where the stool is secrets <laughs> secret 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 she loves her secrets She remains today a much-loved figure in Asante history and the history of Ghana as a whole for her role in confronting the colonial British. She's immortalized in songs. Her name is on secondary schools. They have whole bunches of ceremonies, one each year to remember her, and then one they had at the 100-year anniversary. They created a museum about her and the rebellion. Today, there's even an African-Caribbean art center in London named after her. There's documentaries about her life. There's stage performances. There are several news broadcasts. A lot of them are not in English, so it's kind of like hard. Mm. It was hard for me to get a hold of them. But in general, she was a successful farmer, mother. She was an intellectual person, a politician, a human rights activist. She was an amazing public speaker. She was a queen and she was a general. And that That is the story of Yah. That's crazy. I know. I know. It's like it's not a very long story and we don't know much about her, but she's super cool. Yeah, she's awesome. Oh, that was cool. Yeah. I really like her. I would love everybody (laughs) to Google her. There's this amazing picture. It's her. It's a drawing. It's her, and she's in a red, um, like, wrap dress, mm-hmm. and she's standing in front of her region, and she's, like, holding a rifle, and she's wearing all this jewelry. She just looks like a boss. Mm. And I'm just – and I'll say this again in my toast, but I'm just so sad that so much history has been whitewashed, <sighs> and, like, I don't yeah. know a lot about queens from other countries. No. Like, I hear about people like Queen Victoria all the time, and I just don't hear about people from other places. Yeah. Mm. So – that's yeah. All right. That's our why. Well, we're going to finish tonight off with a dessert cocktail. So mm. let's go make that. And we'll be right back with another story. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm going to say it. This is a five-star <laughs> cocktail week. Five-star cocktail. I hope so. I hope this tastes as good as it looks. <laughs> um, it looks delicious. Uh, could be on a 1990s Got Milk commercial. Yes. <laughs> For sure. So I wanted to do... So this is called From A to Zora. <laughs> I love that. In honor of her and our whole season. Um, so I was thinking a lot because she wrote uh, uh, her autobiography that she wrote was called like, uh, you know, the dirt on the trail or whatever. And I was like, ooh, dirt. And I was like, that reminds me of the thing we have at Thanks- or Fourth of July every year, mm-hmm. which is like crushed up Oreos. And it's and so gu- delicious. Where's my gummy worm? I almost put gummy worms in it. And I was like, that would be too disrespectful, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, so yeah, so I decided to make an Oreo cocktail. So this is crushed Oreos. So you rim the glass with them and you put them in the cocktail. You shake it up with them. Like that middle layer to the ice cream uh-huh. cake. Oh, yeah. Uh, milk, coffee liqueur, just a little bit, and then vodka. So we'll see how it goes. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Mm. it's so much deeper than i expected yeah it's a very deep taste Mm -hmm. um i think i want it to be more like i i was expecting it to be so sweet like mm -hmm. a mudslide but it's not because it doesn't have any ice cream in it right it's Mm. it's the i think the vodka really adds to the coffee liqueur almost kind of like a white russian Mm -hmm. um that was what the cocktail online that i kind of based this off of said it was like it's an oreo white russian love that um so yeah, it is delicious. I like it, and it's not overly sweet. It's funny. You think your cocktail is sweeter than this one that has actual cookies in it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Um, so, what do you know about Zora Neale Hurston? So, I know that she was alive during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I know she wears a lot of hats. <laughs> I know that she wrote a lot of literature. I think she was an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. I think she studied people. Um, but I mean, that's, I don't know anything like about her life or even what her seminal work was. Mm -hmm. I just, from my like brief understanding of her is that she was mostly somebody who wrote books about anthropology. Okay. Perfect. Is that kind of right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. She was an anthropologist. Um, and it's funny to me because. I didn't know that she was an anthropologist for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I was just like, yeah, writer, Har- like anytime the Harlem Renaissance comes up in our research, she is always mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I always just kind of put her in New York and then left her at that. But that is not the case. Okay. <laughs> um, so my sources are a YouTube documentary produced by California Newsreel, a Crash Course Black History um, video on YouTube, an article by Christopher Balog in Deep South Magazine, and of course, Wikipedia. All right. And also just, again, I don't know that much about literature. And also there was a ton of stuff going on in her life at the same time. So forgive the timeline a little bit. Forgive if it's a little back and forth. Um because, yeah, she did a lot. And she's a banger. Uh-huh. She and really is. And the season with a bang. Mm-hmm. That's all we're trying to do here. <laughs> <laughs> so, Zora Neale Hurston was born in Natasolga, Natasolga, Alabama, <laughs> on January 7th, 1891. Alabama. Alabama. Um, all four of her grandparents were former enslaved people. She was the fifth of eight children born to John Hurston and Lucy Ann Hurston. 
Her father was a Baptist preacher, a sharecropper, and a carpenter, and her mother was a school teacher. Um, was he Jesus? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> uh, so when she was three years old, her family left Alabama and moved to Eatonville, Florida, which was one of the first incorporated all black communities in the United States. Oh, really? Yeah. This was fascinating to me. Zora loved it here so much that she often claims it is her birth town. Like hmm. she loves to say that she was born there, even though she wasn't it's a real because because yeah. <laughs> it truly was her hometown. It was where she grew up. It was where she felt safe. And it was where she eventually based a lot of her writing and did a lot of her research. Mm. So Eatonville had been created in 1887. And since it was a place built for and by black people, it was a rare place in America where a young black girl like Zora could grow up letting her creativity flow and just running wherever she wanted to because she didn't have to worry about the dangers of living in the segregated South. Yeah, she was out of Alabama. Yeah, she, <laughs> she got really out of was. Um, and it was really nice to live in a community where everyone kind of had the same goal of safety and education. I mean, this community had two schools and zero jails. Not a lot of black children in the South in the late 1800s, early 1900s could say that. Right. It's insane. And so, I mean, think about how many people there are like probably former slaves. Oh, I mean, you I know think what I mean? So it's like a lot, lot about education. Yeah. Um, so she's living in this great community and her mother was also a really big encourager of Zora's spirit. Like I think her father wanted her to be more on the straight and narrow and geared towards education and like a lot, like the schools were kind of geared more towards like vocational education as well. Like here's how you get like a job that's going to earn you money to support your family. And her mom always told Zora, she goes, do whatever you want. She mm -hmm. goes, jump at the sun, honey, which I love that phrase um so in eatonville her father was one of the first mayors elected to the town in wow. 1897 and then in 1902 he served as the minister of the town's largest church macedonia missionary baptist when she was 13 years old her mother died and a year after, her father married a woman named Maddie, who some neighbors believe he was sleeping with before his wife died. Ooh. So there was a tiny bit of scandal. That's saucy. Um, and unfortunately, after this, Zora said her family kind of disintegrated. Uh, she was shuffled to a few different houses during this time, and she went to a Baptist boarding school in Jacksonville. But she was soon kicked out of the school because her father couldn't afford the tuition. So once she was kicked out of this boarding school, she was really on her own. Like her father was like, I have eight children. Like I cannot support you. You know, you're just going to have to make it on your own. Mm. So she ran off with a traveling theater troupe to get out into the world and to see if she could make ends meet and make a life for herself. Uh, she went to Memphis for a bit, working odd jobs. She was a waitress, a manicurist, and a maid. And then finally in 1917, 
after quite a big gap, she resumed she resumed her formal education in Baltimore. She Woo! attended <laughs> Morgan College, which was the high school division of Morgan State University. So like Morgan Prep. Oh, cute. <laughs> uh, which of course Morgan State is a historically black college in Maryland, which I live literally right next to the campus too. Like HBC. Woo! Casey literally skates there all the time in their <laughs> parking garages. <laughs> Um, but in order to qualify for the free tuition, because then she, again, she's just trying to get her high school diploma. Right. She had to lie about her age. So she claimed to be born in 1901. So they thought she was 16, but she was actually 26 years old at the time. Hide those crow's feet, girl. Just get it done. Get some lotion. <laughs> Drink a lot of water. So she gets her high school diploma and then she is off to the DC area to attend the HBC historically black college HBC is it HBCU the official term I think it's HBC yeah HBC okay um Howard University (laughs) she was one of the earliest initiates of Zeta Phi Beta sorority founded by and for black women and she also co-founded the newspaper the hilltop which, like, I feel like I've heard of the Hilltop. Really? Yes. She founded that. That is crazy. <laughs> I know. She took courses in Spanish, English, Greek, and public speaking and earned her associate degree in 1920. In 1921, she wrote a, stor- a short story, John Redding Goes to Sea, which qualified her to become a member of Alan Locke's literary club called The Stylus. And it was Alan Locke who encouraged her to take the next step in her writing career and go to the new center of black literary success, Harlem. Harlem was exactly the place for her. She soon found herself to be one of the Harlem Renaissance's most prolific voices. And whenever she walked into a party, she would announce that Queen Zora had arrived. And once she arrived, word would spread around the party and she... (laughs) Would just constantly be approached by people saying, Zora, please tell me a story. Because she was an incredible storyteller. And she had plenty of stories about the South where there's like this town where people think it's like fictional. They're like, what? A town where there's like no white people to discriminate against me? That sounds amazing. (laughs) It was kind And she was like, yeah, it's kind of like Harlem. But like, you know, we're like, like... I think it was Langston Hughes had that great quote. He was like, I'd rather be a, a lamppost in Harlem than the mayor of a town in Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think um, one of the cool things I think I remember learning about the Harlem Renaissance is it's like it's one of the first real times where like white Americans were really seeking out black art and black artists. Mm-hmm. It was like, no, we're going to come to your part of town yeah. to learn about like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Which has obviously extended into today, like in the music industry, you know, like so much. Mm -hmm. So people loved reading what she wrote and other prominent black writers also loved writing with her. So she and a few other writers, including Langston Hughes, who they were very, very close friends, published a quarterly magazine called Fire, (laughs) which was meant to feature up and coming up and coming black writers of the Harlem Renaissance and kind of give them a place where they could write whatever the fuck they wanted. That's cool. 
Um, so this was an extremely influential publication, but it was also highly criticized for its discussion of taboo subjects such as homosexuality and also its vulgar and distasteful language. Like they didn't, people didn't like that they were using swear words and talking openly about sex. And like, they're like, no, we're supposed to be not doing that. Like they're going to think that we're all like that, you know, and that will, that theme will follow Zora throughout her career. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's just terrible when you have to speak for an entire entire group of people yeah and you shouldn't be asked to do that yep it's like this is just my taste yes yeah. uh so one of her most influential essays of fire uh was in 1926 it was called sweat and it discussed a woman who was trapped in an abusive relationship and it was seen as a really revolutionary feminist story because it openly discussed a black woman seeking independence And I think that it was also revolutionary because it was in an intimate relationship. Like, I think we were really used to seeing, like, black women trying to escape, you know, enslavement situations. Mm. And this is like, no, this is happening to her in a community that she's supposed to feel safe in. And so this was, like, a really, like, groundbreaking feminist text for her in the beginning of her career. Uh, But she wasn't just in New York to play. In 1925, she was offered a scholarship to Barnard College at Columbia University, which was a women's college where she was the sole black student. She was the only black student there. (laughs) And while she was at Barnard, she conducted ethnographic research with noted anthropologist Franz Boas of Columbia. And she later studied with him as a graduate student as well. So Franz was a really influential anthropologist because he was a really strong voice rejecting the idea of judging cultures based on biology. Mm. <laughs> he was like, mm, no, like black people aren't lesser than us because they, of their like physical built physical makeup. makeup. Yeah, exactly. He was like, I think we need to look at it more as like cultural relativism. And he was like, when we judge other cultures, we need to base them and we need to judge them on their own merits and not how they compete against other cultures. What a weird idea. What a crazy idea. Somebody (laughs) kick him out. I don't want to hear anything else he has to say. (laughs) So this was why Zora was such an like amazing writer for him to know because he was like, I think he, I think, again, I don't know much about Franz Boas's work and his greater catalog or Mm -hmm. whatever, but he took a real interest in Zora because he was like, I think you can go and write about these cultures without the judgment that like, oh, like I would go down there with. Mm. And so so that was, he's a white guy. He's he's a white guy. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, so she also worked with Ruth Benedict and fellow anthropology student, Margaret Mead, which like, I know I heard about Margaret Mead in my (laughs) anthropology classes. Margaret Mead. We haven't done her yet. We have not. That's a, that's a big misstep on our part. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) So Zora received her bachelor's in anthropology in 1928 when she was 37. At some point during this time, again, everything's overlapping, she became the secretary for Fanny Hurst, who was the highest paid female writer at the time. They traveled quite a bit together, and sometimes uh, to get into non-integrated restaurants, Zora would introduce herself as Princess Zora, so they thought that she was some type of African princess to let her in. Oh, hey. (laughs) Uh, But once when a hotel wouldn't let Zora stay there because she was black... Fanny stood up for her and said, well, I won't stay here either. And Zora was like, 
please don't do that. Yeah. She was like, look, it's so nice of you, but she was like, I can take care of myself. Like she was really big on this in her own personal life and her writing. She goes, I don't want to be treated like a victim. She was like, you know, if they don't want me here, then I don't want to be here. You know, I mean, one of her most famous quotes is she said, sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it doesn't make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can anyone deny themselves the pleasure of my company? <laughs> it's beyond me. <laughs> that is so fun. It's just her. this great thing of like, if they don't want me, then I don't want them. Yeah. Like whatever. <laughs> like she's like, I'm great. And I know that I'm great. It's so such I a care. different like personality thing and yes. such an important one. I think like, and I mean, this is why it's so important to listen to the voices of the people who are being discriminated against. Like, if they don't want you to do something on their behalf, like, mm-hmm. don't, because that's just as bad. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, like, just different, we were two, two, three weeks ago when we were having Sunday night dinner. Um, your bestie was there. Paige was there. And I was talking about how I had gone into the paint section at Home Depot and, like, Four or five guys like asked me if I needed help. And I was like, I just want you to leave me the hell alone. Uh Like I don't like not people that work there, just people trying to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And Paige is like totally like Zora. She was like, damn, I'm always trying to get help in Home Depot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at it as like a physical like assault on me as a woman. Uh And she's just like, just somebody help me get out of there quick. (laughs) And it just is so funny to me. I feel like it's just that situation. Like I'm not angry about this. I Mm -hmm. just think it's crazy. Yep, exactly. (laughs) I mean, Zora was very witty, obviously, but she was also very observant and she could be critical of her own culture. She was openly speaking about colorism before a lot of other people were. She would call out the unfair treatment of darker skinned black people In one of her writings called Color Struck, she wrote, the whole world has a sign on it, wanted, light-skinned. And she was noticing very early on, she goes, oh, yeah, like, they, even people in my own community treat light-skinned people differently Mm. than they treat dark-skinned people. And she didn't like that. She thought that wasn't okay. Um, She was also a unique character because everyone said that she wouldn't change her behavior or her personality based on who she was with so some of her contemporaries might have been careful to not tell off-color jokes around white people you know they might clean up their language a bit uh so that the white people didn't think that all black people talk that way Mm -hmm. but zora did not give a fuck she goes why should i change for them because she goes and again you said it perfectly earlier she was like i'm not speaking for everyone she goes i'm speaking for myself And myself should be enough. Right. And I, yeah. Good for her. At some point during her time with Franz Boaz, he tells her he has an assignment for her. He wants her to go down to the Southern United States and he wants her to research black folklore and culture. She loved the idea of this, but she she didn't do that. She didn't have the money. Uh (laughs) Alan Locke, the former guy who got her into the writing society, told her to go to Harlem introduced her to a woman. This is a white woman named Charlotte Osgood Mason. She was a philanthropist and a literary patron who became very interested in Zora's work and career. She was really big on supporting African-American authors. Um, She supported Langston Hughes and Alan Locke because 
I don't really know exactly what her deal was, but she was like, I just want more black writers to be supported. Like she gets like a little funny later, but like, yeah, I think it's support black cool. voices. Yeah. <laughs> She's doing it with money, which was what she needed. <laughs> so Zora goes down South in 1927 with a video camera. Like she shoots all this footage herself. The documentary was filled with footage that Zora shot. Oh it's insane. So she had a video camera, $200 a month and a pearl handled revolver. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. (laughs) And she decided to start where she was most comfortable and where she was sure she would find a lot of black people who were willing to talk to her. Eatonville, Florida. Because I also think people up in the north were like not quite understanding this town because it was so different than what a lot of people were experiencing. So she was like, yeah, other people should know what's going on here because it's fucking cool. So she goes down there. She's recording the games that children play, the schoolyard songs that they sing, you know, and she is just loving this whole research process. She once said research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with purpose. She would also go down to the general store at the center of town and just listen to people tell stories. I mean, this was like the local watering hole was the front steps of the general store. And she just sat there one day, like all day and would listen to these people tell stories that had been passed down for generations through slavery. I mean, stories that were in danger of getting lost because they were largely oral retellings. Right, because they're not a lot recorded. of these people were illiterate. Yeah. Like they couldn't write them down. So she was the first person to care enough to record them. Then she wanted to get deeper into something that was not discussed on the front steps of the general store. She goes, okay, I have some folk stories. I have some songs. I have some dances. I have schoolyard chants. But she wanted to get deeper into the South and research hoodoo. Now, hoodoo, from my understanding, is a form of voodoo that is kind of mixed with Roman Catholicism. And it's seen as more of a folk magic. So it's kind of like taking these this like these like ancient african kind of deities and rituals and then mixing them with roman catholicism because that's what they had i feel like that happened a lot in central and south america it did right and then like if you're in the southern united states it just kind of pushes up into it Mm -hmm. like i know i did a whole class on this exact thing in uh, i believe it was brazil Mm. and like the witch doctors there and it was just like absolutely fascinating because um, they're literally like doing these, like like slaughtering chickens to like the Virgin Mary, right. and I think most Catholics were like, she doesn't want that. But they're like, well, I think she does. Yeah. <laughs> Who says? You don't know her like that. Um, no, I think that happens in a lot of like multicultural societies yeah. after like generation after generation of like living mm-hmm. in the same friggin' space. And it makes so much sense yeah. in New Orleans, right? <laughs> uh, literally anything makes sense in New Orleans. That's true. <laughs> so off she went to the less familiar town of New Orleans. She met with some witch doctors and even went through an initiation where she endured a 69-hour state of no food or water. (laughs) She could do nothing but lay naked with a rattlesnake skin on her navel on hoodoo doctor and claimed grandnephew of Marie Laveau, Luke Turner's couch. She said this ordeal caused her to have psychic visions. I think she said she had five. 
She also had her finger sliced at the end of this to become a blood brother with the rattlesnake that was sitting on her belly the entire time. So she's laying there for 69 hours, no uh-huh. food or drink, uh-huh. can't move. Uh-huh. So are you peeing yourself at this time? It's so funny that you said that because I was not even thinking about peeing and pooping. And that was the first thing Casey said, too. He goes, that couch would be disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. I was like, you're right. <laughs> you, that's because you were focusing on the snake skin. I was. So that I was, was freaking very you out distracted and you by couldn't the snake. snake. <laughs> also, now that we're going to New Orleans and there's this, the philanthropist is still funding her, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know in Princess and the Frog, her rich white friend is named Charlotte? <gasps> really? I wonder, I wonder if there's some sort of connection there. <sighs> it's very interesting to me. Very interesting. So uh, during this ordeal, also a bolt of lightning was painted on her back, and she and the doctor said that that was to be her sign forever. So a lightning bolt is her symbol, <gasps> which is very cool and powerful, like Harry Potter. Uh huh. <laughs> and Zeus. Wrote- <laughs> I mean, like Zeus. <laughs> and Zeus, I guess. Ew. She wrote to Langston Hughes during her first few months in New Orleans, reporting that quote things are beginning to go well now. I am getting in with the top of the profession. I know 18 tasks, including how to crown the spirit of death and kill. Oh. 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 (laughs) With her bare hands. Oh, my God. And kill. Uh, Kill the chickens for uh, Mary? Or what is she doing? get into it. So she got involved in real cases, such as a local woman who wanted to get rid of her husband's brother, her brother-in-law. Zora was tasked with retrieving the chickens, assisting in killing them, and spreading their ashes on the highway. Oh. So she went and spread the ashes of the dead chickens, and then he wouldn't be allowed to pass the ashes. So they're like, yeah, if we just, like, put it on the highway, then he can't come back to New Orleans. Oh. Uh, Is that how it's done? I I might need to utilize Yes. So if you guys want to do it. um, (laughs) Then she was involved with hoodoo practitioner Anatole Pierre. He had a client who paid $250 for a death ritual. Ooh. Pierre sent Zora to retrieve beef brain, beef tongue, beef heart, a black cat, and a live black chicken. Then Pierre made a concoction with bad vinegar, placing it in a jar, and then making a coffin six inches long. Zora was then sent out to buy a small dog to resemble the man that was to be killed, and then to be placed in the half-a-foot coffin. Zora and Pierre then dug another grave and entombed the live chicken and the black cat. And every night for 90 days, Pierre slept in that very grave. And Zora later wrote that the man who was supposed to be killed had indeed died. And you know what? I do not think that $250 is enough for all that. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I agree. And I'm also like, is she on acid? What is she I doing? I don't know. That's uh, But a this is the kind of work thing. that Zora's doing. That's um, it's just like insane to me that she had not only the dedication, but like the stomach to do this all. <laughs> well, and I mean, you have to like. I mean, to write a good, like, anthropological story, I feel like you have to fully immerse yourself. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you're just a bystander, and the people aren't being real around you. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know. That's crazy talk, though. Yeah. Um, and she really did get involved, and one writer described her research this way. Uh, they said, she wrote these stories as a participant observer. 
As an anthropologist, she never judged. She never defended, nor did she boast on any behalf. She explained the lives of the Hoodoo community as they were, not as they should have been, which I think is the main thing that is, again, a through line through all of her research and her writing if she is not trying to change people and cultures to make them more palatable to people on the outside, she goes, no. Yeah. I was on the couch. I had a rattlesnake on my navel. Uh, I got a black cat, a black chicken. I did this. And these are the facts. Like (laughs) you just have to be a very like logical linguistic person. Yeah. Like, and then, and it's funny too, because she's very logical and she's very linguistic, but she can also like, weave a story about it mm. you know what i'm saying she has which like is, flowery speech as well mm-hmm. uh which is very interesting uh and th- some people said the only iffy thing about her research is that she truly did believe in the magic like which again is kind of i think that can um impede your distant anthropological research a little bit but yeah. she but it was also she wouldn't have been able to get into these circles if she hadn't have like re- i don't if she hadn't like really fucking believed I mean, it. undercover cops have to do drugs and shit. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like you just get into it. <laughs> exactly. So after New Orleans, she traveled more in the South, including areas of her uh, birthplace um, near Alabama, collecting as many black folk tales as she could. So she's writing these letters pretty much every day to Langston Hughes. And he is loving these letters so much. He goes, you know what? I'm going to come down there and I'm going to join you. He goes, this sounds amazing. So he comes down there. He's talking to people with her. He's like, this is so cool. And they're so inspired by their travels together that they decide to write a play called Mule Bone. Mule. I don't know. I feel like that made it sound like I said meal. It's mule. mule. Mule Bone. This was going to be a comedy about African-American life that they were very clear it was not going to consist of racial stereotypes, um, but it was going to be based on one of the folk tales that they had heard in their travels. So they're doing this thing. They're writing this play. They're having a good time. But then before they publish it, Zora totally ghosts him, just stops answering his calls, stops meeting up with him, no letters, no responses. That's weird for her, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. And the next thing he knew, it was being published only under Zora's name. That's shitty. It's really shitty. And Langston Hughes was understandably pretty fucking pissed. Now, Zora claims that she wasn't the one who sent it in for a publication, you know, which some people say is true. Some people say isn't. I don't know. But that friendship was destroyed over this, which sucks because they were so close. And he's super famous. Yeah. (laughs) They're both so famous and they were best friends at some point. And it just all got fucked up and it makes me so sad. And the play would then sit in limbo until the nineties when it was finally performed for the first time, because he was like, no, I co-wrote that and I do not give permission for it to be. It was contested. You couldn't do anything. Yeah. It just, Everything got shitty with it. That's so terrible. So in 1932, Zora, with the help of Charlotte again, uh, produced her first play called The Great Day. This was kind of a musical, more of like a concert. Um, It was based on a Florida railroad work camp. And it was basically an exhibition 
but in play form of all of the folk songs and the dances and the rituals that she observed in this very real place hmm. and it was very specific to the railroad and uh, you know she was like this is the real culture down there and these are the ways that they get through these backbreaking days making railroads for people so that like this nation can be built you know, and it's very songs, cool. Like, I've been working, working on, on the railroad. <laughs> Why do we all know that song? <laughs> what, like, Dan is in the kitchen with, what's that song? The, oh, what's Vira. <laughs> what is she in with? Who is she in the kitchen with? <laughs> Damn it. Who the fuck is in the kitchen with Dinah? <laughs> <laughs> that is the quote of the day. <laughs> Quote of the day, going on a tote bag. <laughs> Who the fuck is in the kitchen with Dinah? Oh my god, I haven't sang you? that song for years. That's really going to bother me. Um, in the kitchen with Dinah. I don't know, but I always think it's not. About, I've been working on the railroad. They're no, two different songs. No, they are. But like the I've been working on the railroad. Like to me, it's so funny that I sang that as a kid. Yeah, never <laughs> once. You were never one. Well. Okay. You can hear the trains from your house. I can hear the trains from my house. I can feel the, hear the trains from my house currently. B&O Railroad. What's up? Next door neighbor. <laughs> Shout out to B&O Railroad. First railroad in the United States, I think. That's a made-up fact. <laughs> Love you. I, I'm going to figure out about Dinah and let Please us know. Please do. Um, so, <laughs> so... She's wanting to make plays again, but based in reality and not based in stereotypes. So she's doing this really cool stuff that mixes art and anthropology. But she is frequently reminded that because Charlotte Mason is her patron for all this, that she kind of owns it in the end and she has final say in it. So Charlotte would be like, oh, yes, the railroad songs, love this, great for the stage. But she goes, all the hoodoo and voodoo stuff, leave that off the stage. She wasn't saying don't write about it, but she goes, that stuff is more for a book. And, like, I don't think it would be good on the stage. You hmm. know, she's like, I think it's a little too scandalous to really be put on the stage. So Zora would kind of work on stuff on the side and not really disclose that stuff to Charlotte. And then... There is a letter that she writes to Charlotte where she is praising her and thanking her and she calls her her godmother. And it's like this very nice letter, but then she signs it, your favorite pickaninny, Zora, which many people rightfully have a problem with. Yeah. And their relationship to this day remains a bit murky. But I don't know. I don't I, – that makes me really uncomfortable. I don't know what kind of relationship they had, but I don't like that. And But what I can say is that for five years, Zora got to travel, conduct research, and write and be paid to do so. So I do like that. And she also did support other black artists. And also it's not like she called Zora a pickaninny. Zora signed the letter herself that. So yeah. I just don't know how I feel about all of it. it. Like, I don't know. I think a lot of times like minorities in groups like kind of take on their tokenism and it becomes like a joke that they become comfortable with, mm -hmm. which like um, Zora has the right to do that if she wants to do that amongst her friend group. But oh. I do think it makes it more difficult mm -hmm. for 
people to move away from racial slurs and racial phrasing because then it's like, well, I could say it to this friend. Right. Why can't I say it to this friend? Or like, why are you so touchy and insulted? Yeah. And I think this is the point where like her whole like individualistic thing of like, I don't speak for all black people, which, you know, is also fair, but then it gives way to like, okay, but if you're calling yourself this word in front of her, then it almost gives her the freedom to call other black women this when like they probably won't like that. Right. (laughs) You know? And I think that that's where the lines are kind of blurred a bit for this whole, like, well, like I'm a free agent, you know, I can do whatever I want. And, but it also does have ramifications potentially for other people. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I call myself a stupid bitch all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do something. and I'm like, God, I'm such a stupid fucking bitch. (laughs) But like, if somebody else said that to my face, I'd be like, fuck you. I'd be furious. Yeah. I'd be like, who the hell are you? Get out of my life. I'm holding your grudge forever. Yeah. But like, I say that about myself. Yeah. So, I don't know. But in 1932, their partnership officially ended. And by 1935, Zora was back in Florida publishing a new work, a book called Jonah's Gourd Vine. This is the story of a black preacher, which was kind of based on her father. It was about a virtuous man who loves too many women for his own good. (laughs) And it's kind of a bold story to tell because at the time, many African-American writers worried about deviating from like this kind of clean image that they were trying to establish in white America. And they were just, again, always so worried that books like this would kind of derail the process. Mm -hmm. And they're like, why would you write a book about a black preacher who cheats on his wife? They're like, that makes all of us look bad. It's the same fucking thing, you know, over and over again. Um, So that one, you know, people were kind of worried about. And then Mules and Men came after that. This is kind of a nonfiction, but fiction-like telling about some of her travels in the South and the folklore that she gathered there. So this is kind of like her Grimm's fairy tales, it seems like. And one of the really important things that this book did was that it recorded a lot of the dialect that black folks in the South were using. So she would write it, kind of explain it, and then also describe, you know, white people saying that they're speaking English incorrectly. But she goes, no, we're not speaking English incorrectly. She goes, we're just using it in a different way. You know, what we're saying has its own rules and its own meaning and also the way that we speak has been influencing how white people down here speak. Right. Like they are actually taking from the way that we are using English. <laughs> um, and a lot of like um, the, the tones and stuff. Cause I know like Maya Angelou was also in this documentary and she was talking about Zora's work and you know, she was like talking about how a lot of the African languages used tone and mm-hmm. like traditional English doesn't have that. Mm. And she was like, so like when you would say, how are you doing? You're like, "Mm, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. You know? And then you're like, you kind of get something from that. Like, Hmm, you know? And she was like, that was something that was being incorporated into the way that people in the South were speaking black people. And then white people also started to do the same thing. It's part of the Southern accent. It is. I, 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 when I think about an old man on like a rocking chair on the back porch where he's like, "Mm -hmm." Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, like, and she's explaining that, like, these are the roots of that. Like, it came from these black cultures down there. And, like, white people are taking from that. So that was a really interesting thing. And she, again, is 
writing about it, and she's humanizing and exploring the impact that Black culture was having on the South as a whole. Zora also worked to get Black folk music recorded and submitted to the Library of Congress for preservation. Mm. Her and this guy traveled together and recorded over 200 songs to be submitted because she was like, this is part of our history, too. In 1936, Zora received a Guggenheim grant to go to Haiti to research a book on voodoo. Now, we haven't discussed much about her personal life, again, because she's been so fucking busy. Um, But between all of this, I will mention she did get married to a jazz musician turned teacher uh, at Howard turned doctor named Herbert Sheen. So she married him in 1927. Oh, wow. They've been together for a bit. Uh, well, they split up in 1931. Oh, okay. <laughs> so now it's over. Um, and the only reason I'm mentioning this is because then in 1935, Zora began a romance with a young graduate student at Columbia named Percy Punter. So when she was sent to Haiti in 1936, uh, the two of them split up. But this kind of whirlwind, intense romance and her new surroundings in Haiti inspired her to start another project uh separate from the voodoo research Mm -hmm. while she was there um she started writing their eyes were watching god this is her most famous work and if you read it uh the character of tea time is inspired by percy it's the story of a young black woman named janie crawford discovering herself through relationships with three very different men But one of the things that made the book so interesting is that, again, she writes a lot of it in Black dialect, which was very bold for the time. It was also different because often when, like, white authors did it, it was to demean a person of color. um, To make them sound uneducated. Right, or a person of lower social standing. Like, I think, you know, the classic one is the Cockney accent in classic British writing. It was like, that was meant to be like... This person is fucking stupid. Yeah, Charles Dickens did it a lot. This person is of a lower class, you know? And, but she did it in a way that was simply like, nope, this is the language. It has its own rules. It has its beauty. And like, I am going to write in the way that they talk because they do not talk like a person in Massachusetts. They just Mm -hmm. don't, you know? And I should respect that. Um, And she also, according to one writer that was in the documentary, does another really cool thing in the book where she doesn't make the main character, Janie, a victim, which a lot of books about black life did at the time, you know? And she was like, no, Janie's not a victim. She's just doing her own thing, and that thing is okay. Uh, And again, it kind of goes back to her time with that other writer. She goes, I don't want to be a victim. I just want to be respected as my own person. It's like, yes, shitty things happen to people like me, but it doesn't define who I am. And it didn't define who Janie was in this book. Right. The book received excellent reviews from publications like the New York times. But unfortunately the reviews from the black publications totally trashed this book. Even Alan Locke, her longtime champion hated the book calling the characters pseudo primitive famed black author richard wright also hated the book with a passion and they just thought that she wasn't being political enough and they thought that gosh like what a ridiculous way to write a story about black people it doesn't even comment on white supremacy and she was like well i think that we deserve books that aren't all about white people (laughs) 
you know, it's it's like the Bechdel thing in movies. Yeah. It's like we don't need women to always be sitting there talking about boys. Yeah, exactly. Like there are other stories to tell. Yeah. She said, well, I think we deserve more than two dimensional books that simply use black people as pawns to make larger political points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was like, I'm not treating my characters as pawns she goes i'm treating them as characters that have their own merit and worth besides this shitty situation that we are obviously in because we also deserve literature that is creative and flowing without reminding us every second of the book that like things are shitty like which i think is really cool it's cool and it's important because there's a lot of fights right now about what should be included in school curriculums Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and one of the things that a lot of people say is we do teach black history and there are a lot of black voices that say, no, you teach slavery. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. one thing that happened to black people. Yeah. That is not black history. Yeah. It's it, one facet of it. And yeah. that's why she's like, no, like this book is a comedy. It is a romance novel. It's a story about a woman finding herself. She's like, and it's about her. Yeah. And I just, I don't know. I think it's cool. I've never read the book, but like this is one of her most influential works. And I think it's for a good reason. Right. Like, all right. So then she wrote two more books over the next two years and her star is really on the rise. In the 1940s, she's traveling around, she's lecturing, she's giving interviews, all that jazz. And then she gets the opportunity to do more anthropological research. She went to Buford, South Carolina to study a roadside Baptist church called the Commandment Keeper Church of the Living God with funding secured from Margaret Mead herself. Stop (laughs) it. It was a very musical church with a ton of instruments, including drums. So Zora was really interested in preserving the music, exploring the roots of it, and really figuring out like the purpose of it in this community. But when Zora got down there with her film crew to the church, uh, they said no. They considered the filming and the recording to be taking a graven image of God. Uh, But thankfully, Zora knew kind of what to say to get them to let her in. And again, I also think that this is the importance of having more than just Franz Boaz, who's an old white man. And like, he obviously knew this. (laughs) Yeah. I am not the one to go down there and do this work. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work for me. It's not going to work. And like, she knew how to get in there and convince him like, no, this is going to be okay. This is going to be a good thing. Um, and music was indeed a big part of the church. She found that it was more so in the rhythm and how the rhythm, like they believed could let the Holy spirit in. Mm. So she's recording these video serve these videos of these services with people catching the spirit, dancing, speaking in tongues, like, really interesting stuff that like would sound like made up. I think if she told again, like people in Massachusetts about it. (laughs) Um, so after this particular adventure, a publisher approached Zora and was like, you have lived an insane life. You should write a book about it. She's a little reluctant, uh, but she did eventually write and publish Dust Tracks on a Road in I 1942. Wonder, do, I wonder if she thought like it felt exploitative a little mm. to be like, I spent so much time studying these people and now to right. like implant myself in it. 
right feels kind of weird. Yeah. I know. She definitely had a lot of issues with writing about herself. Um, and unfortunately, there does seem to be some careful maneuvering around the truth in this book. <laughs> you know, like she claims to be from Eatonville. Uh, we know that she doesn't really tell her real age because she's been lying for so long at this point <laughs> um and she seems to be the kind of person who like you said loved telling other people's stories but was really uncomfortable telling her own uh this is why we don't really know much about her first husband or her second or her third <laughs> <laughs> get and, it girl but frankly she may not have known much about them either <laughs> her Last two marriages, like we talked about the first guy a little bit, uh, but her last two marriages lasted less than a year. And again, she's traveling for most of them, which I think is also why her first marriage fell apart. Like she just wasn't there. Uh, we know that there was a 25 year age gap between her and her second husband. And then I don't really know much about the third. But that's what we know. <laughs> I like that, though. I like it, too. And she did say once she goes. Marriage would only widen my hips and narrow my life. So, <laughs> same. Like, widen my hips. My life's fine, though. Widen my hips and narrow my life. <laughs> I just, I love that quote. Um, so, I think that she liked men and liked sleeping with them, but wasn't so concerned with the marriage thing as a whole. And once they started to bore her, she left. She strikes me as a bit of like a Ginger Rogers, who like, we covered her forever ago, and I yeah. still think about her because I think she just liked having boyfriends, but society told her she had to marry them. So right. she's like, fine, whatever, I'll marry them, but I'll also fucking divorce them a year later. I don't give a fuck. It was like her virtue was too important right, or something like because of the time period. And I mean, she's alive in a very similar time period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't really have a lot of long-term relationships uh, because she really cherished her independence. And eventually, <laughs> after their eyes were watching God and all this, she lived predominantly on a houseboat just to make sure people didn't bother her. <laughs> um, That's where I will retire to. Yes. <laughs> a random houseboat, leave me alone. <laughs> but even though she didn't disclose too much about her personal life and her autobiography, she did take a chance in this book to say some pretty radical things about the U.S. Um, and its government and their history of colonization and racism. And she also takes this opportunity to be kind of critical about World War II. She goes, yes, of course, like what's happening in Europe is fucking awful. But the president feels completely fine to ignore the hard time that plenty of black folks are having here in America. Yeah. And she's basically like, you are ignoring the problem here and focusing so much on this problem over there. Like, and there are people who here who need your help too, basically. So to say these kinds of things and to criticize the government during World War II, a very particularly patriotic time, was seen as near treasonous mm. to the publishers. So they just kind of lifted it out of her book and put it aside <laughs> save this one so for later. she's getting in a bit of hot water with the government and then she is also getting criticized for her opinions on black politics as well this is when things get uh, a little dicey for her <laughs> she would back politicians that were against the welfare system 
um, she was like, yeah, like nobody should get handed anything for free. Like I worked hard for what I have. And so every other Uh, black person should too, you know, and kind of, you know, and it kind of felt like she was conflating a lot of things and like ignoring like the social issues that lead to things like this. And that like, no, some people do need some assistance because they're systemically persecuted you know and so she's doing that and that's like "Mm, you're a little out of step you know with what we're all thinking right now i mean she also grew up in a neighborhood where like again the sky's the limit most black people at the time in the united states didn't grow up in that environment so the cards are stacked against you at that point yeah she even opposed the supreme court ruling in the case brown versus board of education Because she felt like it benefited the black students to be separate from the white students. Again, it goes back to her philosophy of she was like, why would we put black students in schools with white children who are going to torment them? It's a hostile environment. I get that. And I know I understand that aspect of it. She goes, why would we put these kids in danger by putting them with the black students? She goes, if they don't want us, then I don't want them either. And that's the kind of mindset she's going with it. But also it's like, no, like <laughs> these kids deserve equal access to public education. Like, yeah. cause it's not just about like, cause like obviously the funding is not going equally, equally to these no. schools. They are not accessible equally to kids. Like you have kids traveling across town just to get to the black school. Cause they cannot go to the white one with in their like neighborhood. old supplies, teachers that aren't educated as well. They did have educated teachers. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there just wasn't, it wasn't separate but equal. It wasn't. Um, So, unfortunately, because she was becoming more out of step, uh, people didn't really want to publish her stuff a whole lot anymore. And then when she finally published her last book, Seraph on the Swanee, in 1948, uh, the reception was not great because rather than focusing on black characters as her previous books had done, this one focused on Florida crackers, as one man put it, wow. <laughs> aka poor white people in Florida. There's a whole Twitter Twitter trend about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and it seems like what she was trying to do was get out of the box that she felt like she was in as a black author. Kind of like the whole thing of like, I don't want to always be writing about racism. She also is like, I don't always be, I don't always want to be writing about black issues. So I think she was always kind of taking this path of resistance mm-hmm. and being like, no, I'm going to push against everything that you think I'm supposed to be doing, you know? And I don't know if she was ever really satisfied with what she was doing. I know she like famously later in life where she goes, I regret everything that I've ever written, which is really sad. Like I just, but I just don't think that she was satisfied with what she was doing at any point in her life. Like I think she was always trying to push the envelope, be different, be herself. But it's hard because when you do try to push the envelope like that, you make mistakes Yeah, and you say things that you are like just inherently wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and that's the thing with being like having your foot forward, you know, yeah. you mess up. Well, and then we say it all the time. It's the problem with pedestals. It's like, yeah. you also can't talk about Zora Neale Hurston and not also talk about the fact that she like vehemently hated Brown versus board of education. Right. Yeah. Like we have to talk about these things and like, I think it was coming from a place that she thought was good, but ultimately it's like that one is probably on the wrong side of history. I mean, yeah. not probably 
is on the wrong side of history. Yeah. I mean, you the fight still happens now. Like, there are people who are very against inclusion, which mm-hmm. is, like, mixing kids of different abilities into similar classes. Mm-hmm. They're like, you're going to slow my kid down versus you're going to speed my kid up versus, like, it's better for everybody right. if we're all learning from each other because we mm-hmm. all have different talents. Yeah. But, like... I can understand as a parent with a child who's living with a disability how I could look at that and say, do I really want them to be treated like that? And I mean, imagine being Ruby Bridges' mom. (sighs) She was alone in a classroom with like one white teacher for years. You have to second guess yourself at some point. So like I can see where she's coming from. Like I obviously am in full support of Brown Board of Education, (laughs) but I can see how being the thick of it, hindsight, could be 2020 in that sense yeah. like i understand where she's coming from and like why rob these children of feeling safe because isn't that like maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah safety's mm-hmm. like in the bottom it's yeah. like food water safety if you don't feel safe how are you gonna learn yeah well and i was thinking too it's interesting that i did this research this week because I just listened to an episode of This American Life where Sashir um, Zameda, who she is on uh, SNL. She's so fucking good on it. She's great. Um, But her mom was in one of the first integrated schools. Okay. And she hated it. Okay. And Sashir is trying to be like, yeah, but mom, like, aren't you like grateful that like you were a part of history and like because of the things that you and your classmates did, she goes, I was able to go wherever I fucking wanted to school. Like I was able to have more access. She goes, I would choose to not be a part of it. Like she hated it that much, you know, so you're a martyr at that point. Yeah. And she goes, and I didn't want to be, she goes, my mom signed me up for that. And I didn't want that, you know? And so it's a really complicated story to tell. Cause like there are going to be kids who suffer because of this, but also the benefits in the long run, the like common good. Yeah, overall. it is the common good. And know? I mean, it sucks, but I can see why Zora yeah, would feel that way. Could have felt that way. Yeah. Um, so the other cloud hanging over this latest book, uh, that she wrote was that a 10 year old boy, uh, and some other teenage boys had accused Zora of molesting them. Oh, Thankfully, it was not true. The case was thrown out for lack of evidence. And in fact, the times that the boys were claiming that she had done this, she wasn't even in the country. So, like, they had very substantial proof that, like, this did not happen. Okay. Um, But the story had already been told in Baltimore and New York. And, you know, they always say, like, you know, a lie travels around the world like 10 times and before the truth can make it a mile. Right. Or whatever the saying is. And people believed it. And this, along with her current beliefs, kind of ostracized her. And she went into a really deep depression. And she even considered suicide during this time period. So she isolates. She moves to Florida. She never returns to New York. I don't even think she leaves Florida after this. She's still writing, and she becomes friends with the people in her area. She's entertaining them with stories of her life, um, but she's just not making enough money. And it's interesting because I also found out that she never really made a lot of money during her time period. Hmm. You know, she wasn't really concerned with making a lot of money, so she didn't really push for some of the other things that 
other authors would. So like people like to say that she was like a rags to riches to rags kind of story. And one person was like, she never had the riches. She was rags <laughs> to rags to rags. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't make a lot writing like random articles about anthropology. Mm-hmm. Like nobody's going to, how many people are going to get that voodoo journal right. you wrote? Exactly. Um, so at this point, she's not even able to maintain her life as meager as it is at this point with what she had made off of her writing. Um, so she goes back uh, to the work that she knew in her youth. She is working as a maid for a wealthy white family. And when the head of the family discovered who his maid was, <laughs> he goes, you're Zora Neale Hurston. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> he calls the press and is like, Zora Neale Hurston is my maid. And they of course come running and when they ask her about it, she claims to be researching a role for her new book. You know, she's like, oh, there's a character who's a maid. So, like, I'm not doing this for real. I'm just getting it, you know, doing it to get experience for, like, you know, what it would be like to really be a maid, you oh, know. she's and trying to save face. I think she's trying to save oh, face. no. But... Because people are writing about her again, she starts to get some calls. People are like, wow, I didn't know you were still alive. And would you like to write this article for this? And <laughs> um, so she is slowly coming back. But again, it's the 50s during the height of the civil rights movement. People didn't love her takes on things. So when she did send some stuff in, it was often rejected. And it didn't take long before she was again working odd jobs and living in a trailer. In 1958, she was offered a job writing a column for a black newspaper. So she's doing that and she keeps writing books. She has been writing books this whole time, but just no one wants to publish them. Then she started to suffer from health issues in her last couple of years. Community members had really pulled together. They're looking after her. They eventually are able to send her to kind of like a retirement home. Uh, but on and she, but she's having a lot of strokes, and it's not looking good. Yeah, that's not good. And on January twenty eighth, nineteen sixty, she died of hypertensive heart disease at the age of sixty nine. But of course, uh, papers when they declared her death uh she's listed as all sorts of ages because she had misled people about her birthday for so long (laughs) amazing Uh, i want to be that mysterious she had been buried uh at the garden of heavenly rest in fort pierce florida in an unmarked grave (gasps) what she was in an unmarked grave that seems insane like everybody knew who she was yeah many of her unpublished manuscripts were burned after her death um, and thankfully one guy was literally walking by and he goes, stop, what are you <laughs> doing? And he was able to save some of them. Um, but other than that, her other books had been out of print for years. So for a really long time, Zora was forgotten. It wasn't until Alice Walker the author of The Color Purple, Mm. was reading a biography of another writer, and he mentioned Zora. And then he said, yeah, we don't really know where she ended up. (laughs) She goes, "Uh, well, I'm going to fucking find her then. (laughs) So she goes looking, and in 1973, 13 years after she passed, Alice found her in this unmarked grave. So she bought with her own money, and this is before she wrote The Color Purple, Mm. Uh, she g- gave her a grave marker that read Zora Neale Hurston, 
a genius of the South, novelist, folklorist, anthropologist. Alice also helped get the conversation about Zora started again with her article Searching for Zora Neale Hurston in 1975. And slowly but surely, her books came back into print and a whole new generation of fans emerged. She had a few books published posthumously, including Every Tongue Got to Confess in 2001 and Barracoon in 2018. This last book was written from interviews she conducted with a man named Cujo Lewis. He was one of the last people who had were alive at the time who had survived the Middle Passage. And he could tell Zora not only about his life in slavery, but how he got there, his life before, which is very rare, and he could describe the ships that they were being taken on. Like, that is an amazing story to save and preserve. Zora Neale Hurston lived a wild life, and even though some of her opinions and the things she wrote about are not remembered as fondly now, we can say that she did so many people a favor by simply telling them that they were important. She went down to the South and said that your stories are important, your myths are important, your songs, your dances, your history, you are important just as you are. She's known mostly for her impact on the Harlem Renaissance, but many people say that she should be known for taking the Harlem Renaissance with her everywhere she went. Mm. And that's the story of Zora Neale Hurston. That is so, <laughs> so cool. I thought we were going to be in Harlem this whole time. Uh, we're going to be like this a little bit. <laughs> Where's the jazz? She just married know. some guy <laughs> who played music. Isn't that Wild? What a great story. Yeah. Um, and actually pairs very well with my story. I couldn't it believe really it. really did. Um, all right. So let's get into it right away uh, in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. I mean, we're talking about like the same time period even. Like yeah. 1800s to 1900s time frame. They're like, there's some overlap. They're overlapping. <laughs> absolutely. And they were both so very connected Mm -hmm. to the slave trade Mm -hmm. which i found so very interesting like how many people from the asante tribe yeah did she encounter came to the united states mitch all four of her grandparents yeah were slaves yeah perhaps one of them yeah like that blows my mind and it's so interesting because you said that yeah, was born at the end of the slave trade. And I was thinking about how, like, right when she's being born, it's kind of finally starting to end and slow down. And then you also have Zora being born into this family that has the same history, but on the other side. Like, yeah is giving and Zora is receiving this generational trauma. Mm -hmm. And... I also was thinking about like the Asante kingdom versus Eatonville. And these are places that are supposed to be built for these people built by them. And they're just trying to live their lives here. And like, thankfully Eatonville still thriving today, by the way, it's like was kind of left alone, but it's because they didn't have anything Mm. that wealthy white people wanted. And the Asante tribe did, they had gold. Right. Which if we learned anything from the film Pocahontas, 
dig, 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 And then John Smith comes in with a ballad in the middle of that song. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I love that song. Um, no, but I think it's... Um, what was I thinking? Oh, the way in which you discussed Zora and the low socioeconomic people and the way that she presented them i found that in a lot of resources about the asante people Mm. there were some people that solely called them tribes and chiefs and some people that called them regions kingdoms and a king interesting and i just think that we use different verbiage Mm -hmm. based on the caliber of people Mm -hmm. and i mean we all know that in north america tribes and chiefs were far more democratic yeah. than anything that was brought in afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I just found it, I was always looking back up at who's the author of this. Right, yeah. Like, because I was like, I want to know, like, are you saying tribe because that's the word you would use in your cultural heritage? Or are mm-hmm. you saying tribe because you are putting that phrase on a group of people that you don't necessarily understand right because some it was a little of both right and it's interesting the real life implications of where these kind of gray areas are when it comes to language because i was thinking about how yeah is actually a you know if we're going to use the term queen in Mm -hmm. this area and zora would call herself a queen or a princess to get into restaurants because she's like maybe they'll mistake me for someone like yeah Mm -hmm. because for some reason it's more social cachet here (laughs) to be considered an african princess Mm -hmm. than there when they're like oh you're an african princess that i'm here to take advantage of you and here to take your land and go to war with you like i think if yah knew that people were like almost posing as someone like her she'd be like you do not want this like Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is difficult and it's hard and it doesn't afford me privileges it actually gives me a lot of headaches (laughs) and the same is true with like talking about folklore Mm -hmm. like when zora finally went to the south to write down some of this oral tradition it had been handed down so long that it is just stories and folklore Mm -hmm. but what about like if yah's story didn't get handed down yeah it would have grown over time and eventually just become a tale you know Mm -hmm. a lot of cultures that get ignored their stories turn into tales yeah a folklore Mm -hmm. it didn't happen it's just what we wanted to happen like women weren't queens yeah (laughs) like i i think that a lot of things because it was oral tradition gets lost and then it gets changed over time and then we think it's fake in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're totally right. And it's interesting too, that like, I feel like yeah, was fighting. Like they had kind of different battles with like white people. Like yeah, was very much like fighting against them and like fighting for the greater autonomy of her people. And I feel like Zora was much more insular and fighting a much more personal battle, you know, because she had kind of this stance of like, well, if they don't want me, I don't want them. And like, that's just it. And like, I, I think Yah chose to take the harder path of like standing for everyone. And I think that Zora was like, I don't need to do that. Like there were some things where she spoke out against like larger topics, but she was like, I think she really truly felt that like, she was like, I don't have to be a political pawn. She was like, I can be me and I can be flawed and Mm -hmm. I 
I think she really rejected the idea that she stood for all black women. I don't think she wanted that pressure or that role. And for Ya, it seemed like it was thrust upon her. And And she she had to. And she had to take it. And she goes, all right, then I'm going to. You know? And big voices. I mean, but the interesting thing is, too, yeah, they both had big voices. And I don't think either of them were afraid of saying what they were thinking. No, not at all. You know, like Zora's like, I'm not going to change my behavior just because you're in the room. And right. y'all was like, yeah, if you're not going to stand with me and fight against this, you're then a little like, girl. You're <laughs> a baby. <laughs> uh, go to bed. Here's your pacifier. <laughs> I'll go to the store and get diapers. You're a baby. But I don't know. I'm just really struck by the 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 difference in two black women living in different parts of the world at the same time period experiencing different ends of the slave trade yeah and just like i don't know the timing of this is really interesting to me um it also shows privilege in that because mm-hmm. Yah grew up so privileged mm-hmm. so wealthy mm-hmm. such a royal family and zora you know, did grow up in a neighborhood where she wasn't discriminated against, but that's like the fucking minimum. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like when people, when people are like black lives matter and they're like, mattering is the minimum. It's literally (laughs) the minimum. We like, let's give to people. Let's Mm -hmm. share. Um, yeah. Crazy. Like that. They were just so different in the way they grew up. Yeah. Well, and I also think that that's the kind of the point that Zora was trying to make. She was Mm -hmm. like, you can't have two dimensional characters in this very three-dimensional world that we're living in. Right. And she was like, you know, and I take these two women. They were living such different experiences and fighting different fights. And that may seem similar on the surface, but they weren't. No. They were so different. And I think that ultimately that was what they were both fighting for was Yah was fighting for the right of people to live freely as themselves. Mm -hmm. And, Sora was also fighting for the same thing. She goes, I just want to tell stories that speak to me and are interesting to me and that, that aren't I, edited, that aren't edited and that I don't feel like I'm pandering to someone or some cause, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, two very interesting, uh, lives. <laughs> I loved this episode. This was uh, fun. What a great way to end this season. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to toast? I am. Who would you like to toast? So I want to toast to female leaders that are not of white, Western European Mm. or North American backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I just think so many of them have been lost to history. Mm -hmm. And that was mostly through colonialization. Yeah. And their stories are just gone. And it's the ignorance of people like me Mm -hmm. who like don't go in search of people who are different. I just am like, well, there's never been a female president and Queen Elizabeth II. Good. Yeah. Margaret (laughs) Thatcher. Yeah. Hillary Clinton. (laughs) But it's yeah, I just I want to toast to the women who have done the work and don't get the credit the credit i love that cheers Mm. all right i am going to toast the women who just don't change themselves for others (laughs) i do think being able to adapt and change as a human is important but i like that she was like i'm not trying to be a fucking role model she was like i'm just trying to be myself like (laughs) and i like that she was just like yeah 
I'm going to tell dirty jokes. And if they don't like it, then like, that's just me. Hmm. Like, and if they read into this, that like all black women speak this way, then she's like, that's a fucking problem with them. She's like, I'm I'm not responsible for that. And Hmm. I just, I don't know. I like that. I think it's important to change and be flexible, but I also like that she was like, fuck that. I'm not changing. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Mm. I'm going to have to make the title of my memoir. I'm not trying to be <laughs> a role model. <laughs> I'm just trying to be myself. <laughs> That's perfect. Okay. All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? I can't remember whether I primed this before or not, but That's fine. we're due for repeats. Oh my God. Honestly, <laughs> producer and I love the show alone. What is that? Love it. So it is a show where they take 10 people, oh, put them out separately <gasps> in society and just let them live there. Wait, in the wilderness. Okay. Not in the like wilderness. society. Okay. Society. <laughs> in the wilderness. Wilderness society. Like Pooh Bear, Eeyore, the whole thing. Got it. Um, I just love it. Okay. I love it because pe- they're filming themselves. They're going fucking crazy because the camera is the only thing they can talk to. They have to hunt. They have to build shelter. I find it fascinating really? and they tap themselves out, but like they don't that. know when other people get tapped out. <laughs> so to win, you have to be there the longest, but when you win, someone just shows up at your camp and is like, you've been here the longest. <laughs> so it could be day 80 and like barely anybody makes it to day 80. Everybody's dying. Cause they put them in like fucking Alaska or something, but it could be day 80 and you don't know if there's five people left or if it's just you and one other person. You <laughs> just have to hold on one more day. No, thank you. I <laughs> love it. I, what is it on? Uh, Netflix. Oh, perfect. And they don't have okay. all the seasons, but like you start at the beginning and you're just like, this is bananas. There's people who tap out on like day six mm-hmm. and then there's people that have made it up to like a hundred days. It's crazy. I heard an interview with the one guy. Because apparently he like was like, oh, I could stay longer. Like he was like not ready to come home. Yeah. Like a psycho. Yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. It's very nuts. But it's a great show. It's like so fascinating to that me. That sounds great. And you've never promoted that before. I don't okay. think. So. I love it. We've watched all the seasons that are available. They don't keep okay. all like nine of them on there, but they'll pop them up every once and again. And it'll, okay. it's a good weekend killer. You can yeah. do the whole thing in a weekend. Perfect. What are you into? I'm going <laughs> to recommend an Instagram. Okay. It's this guy named Petey USA. That's okay. his handle. He is so funny. He's just like this like t- tall, thin white guy with long brown hair and like a beard and a mustache, whatever. And he is fucking hysterical. He's very deadpan and he makes these really funny videos. And he, I don't know. I think someone else like edits them for him, but it's like, He's the only one ever in these videos and he's just talking to himself. And sometimes there are like four of him in the room. Like, (laughs) Hey bud, what's up? Like trying to go swimming later. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It's so dumb, but it's so good. And then I find out Casey and I are going to the dump yesterday. As you do some trash. Yeah. And he's playing this music. And I was like, this is really good. I was like, who is this? He goes, this is Petey. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? He's also like a musician and he's so good. That's pretty funny. So, PDUSA, a gem, just absolutely delightful. His videos are so ridiculous and funny. I love them. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, we have to pack for the beach. 
So we're going to go. We have so much to do. (laughs) But we love you. Thank you for joining us on this alphabet journey. This was such a delight and so much fun. Thank you, Misty, for the idea. Thank you, Misty. Um, And if you want to join us online, you can find us everywhere. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Join us on Tuesdays for Tipsy Tuesdays. We post all the cocktails and the pictures. And then you get a sneak peek of who we're going to do. All for free. And you can play the quiz. Who made what cocktail? Which you guys were on this week. Yes, they were. So please join us online and everywhere. And if you could, if you liked this episode, if you liked this whole season, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Absolutely. That would be the best. So we love you. And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women do not eat scrambled eggs. Oh, they don't. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye